In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 61. Each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm, To the Chief Musician on a Stringed Instrument, a Psalm of David. The title says, to the chief musician. Means it's directed. Some people said chief musician is our Lord Jesus Christ. Others said it is or he is the leader of the choir or musicians at David's time, either Heman, the singer, or Asaph. Then the title says on a stringed instrument. Means the musical instrument of eight strings, perhaps a harp, which was touched either by hand or with a feather or a bow. And it says a psalm of David means the author is David the prophet. David was often in trouble. However, we do not know the life circumstances which prompted this psalm. But from the psalm itself, it is evident it is composed by one who was in exile. In verse 2, he said, from the end of the earth, which means he was in exile. And from verse 6, we know that he is a king. You will prolong the king's life. So if we put these two facts together, he is in exile and he is a king. So this psalm was composed after David came to the throne. So most likely David composed this psalm when he was driven into exile on the rebellion of his son Absalom, when he was still beyond the Jordan, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 22, and his life was in danger. Some think that it might be written when David was in the land of the Philistines when he was escaping from King Saul. But most of the scholars believe that the period of Absalom rebellion has been the most appropriate suggestion about the life circumstances in which David composed this psalm. Actually, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 refer to the same period and have the same general characteristic. In later times, the psalm was naturally adopted as a prayer of the whole nation in, in its dispersion, like in Babylonian captivity, and the king was interpreted to refer to the Messiah. By the way, we pray this psalm in the sixth hour of the Agbeya, the third psalm in the sixth hour of uh, the Agbeya. It's a short psalm, only eight verses. Verse 1 and 2, crying out for rescue. 3 and 4, praising God for his past mercies. 5 to 7, the answer to the prayer, and last verse 8, praising God forever.
Let's start from verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David begins by calling on God, pleading for God to listen to him. He was in distress, which was vocally expressed with great eagerness and persistence. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. To run to God by prayer for comfort is the most necessary thing for any sad soul. And David knew very well that God was his first and best hope in time of trouble. Then in verse 2, he described his sense of distance from God and his agony. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. So, yes, David was on the run at that time and far away from his home. So, this is the voice of an exile from the end of the earth. A man far from the city which he loves most. Yet even at the end of the land, he says he will cry to God. Because no one is out of his reach. You can cry to God from anywhere in the earth. Even when he feels as though he is as far from God as he can possibly from the end of the earth, he will still call out to God with a confidence that God will hear his prayer and respond to him. Yes, he was losing hope when he said, my heart is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. He was ready to sink and fail and die. But God is our ever-present hope even from the ends of the earth. David had no strength in himself. If he depended on himself, he could not be safe. And the image here is David seeking refuge from his enemy and asked God to lead him to the rock that is higher up. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In those moments when his heart was overwhelmed, he perhaps needed a rock, a rock of stability and security, something strong enough to protect him. He needed a rock that is higher than him, a place above himself, meaning above his wisdom, above his abilities. And he knows that he cannot go to this rock by himself. That's why he is asking God to lead him to that rock. David was unable to get to the firm-footed place, the rock, above his crisis 
on his own. That's why he said, lead me to a rock higher than I. Some believe that David, when his son Absalom rebelled against him, and he had to escape from Jerusalem, became as though expelled, rejected, and exiled to the end of the earth. But David knew that salvation was out of his his reach, so he prayed to God to lead him to the rock of salvation that was beyond his grasp, and the grace of God would lift him up high, where no one can reach him or touch him. Of course, the rock that David desires and longs for is God. God himself is our rock. And Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians, Christ is the rock of our salvation. God's power and his promise are rock to us that's higher than we. The word rock symbolizes God's strength. Because his strength, his power, his promises are unmovable and unshakable. His power, his unchanging stability, his limitless might are our rock. He is the rock of salvation. He is the rock eternal. He is the rock of Israel. He is the rock of refuge. And upon this rock, God built his church. So this cry of David could be of the people captivated at Babylon in dispersion, far away from Jerusalem, who cried to God in their grief with their heart abiding on the rock of hope. The same prayer could be the cry of someone taken over by the devil and feeling far from God. Lead me to a rock higher than I. Verse 3 For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. Verse 3 In the past, you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. Verse 4 In the future, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, Selah. David remembered that God had answered such prayers in the past. In the past, God himself had been a shelter and a strong tower for David. A strong tower from the enemy, from Satan, the devouring lion. St. Augustine says, For God himself is the tower. Himself for us has been made a tower from the face of the enemy, who is also the rock whereon has been built the church. So St. Augustine is asking a question. Are you taking heed that you be not smitten of the devil? Are you watching not to be smitten by the devil? Here is the answer. Flee to the tower. Never to that tower will the devil's arrow follow you. When you are hiding in this tower, the arrows of the devil cannot follow you. There, 
you will stand protected and fixed. Verse 4, he said, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. In his exile, he prays that he may once more be received as God's guest in his tabernacle to enjoy his protection and hospitality, to dwell in the place which he has, God has consecrated by his presence. This expresses the confident assurance that he would be restored to his home and to the privileges of public worship. I will abide in your tabernacle forever means he determines that the service of God shall be his constant duty and all those who expect to find God their shelter and strong tower must make the worship of God their constant duty. Only the servants of God have the benefit of God's protection. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, to be protected under your wings. The word tabernacle is simply the word for tent. It refers to the tent of meeting, this sacred tent which was erected for the worship of God. And inside the tabernacle, there was the ark, the tablets of the covenant or the tablets of the law, and the table of showbread, like the church. David regarded it as a great privilege to abide near that sacred tent, near to the place of public worship, near to the place where God was supposed to dwell. So David speaks of abiding in God's tabernacle forever. Why forever? Any tabernacle on earth, any church on earth, they will actually pass away when heaven and earth will pass away. But the church is the icon of heaven. And the tabernacle in the Old Testament also is icon of heaven. As we read in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8 and Hebrews chapter 9:24. So when he said he will abide in God's tabernacle forever, he's speaking about heaven because the sacred tent is a symbol and figure of heaven. Then he said, I will trust in the shelter of your wings. It's a picture of warmth, intimacy, and protection of a mother bird spreading out her wings to protect her chicks from danger in the shelter of her wings. The scripture tells us that there is safety in the shelter of the wings of God. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ mourned over Jerusalem's stubborn rejection. And he said to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. God wanted to gather them to protect them under his wings, but 
you were not willing. Also, if you remember in the tabernacle of meeting, the Ark of Covenant has a cover. And over this cover, the two cherubim, and they were spreading their wings. And on the cover, God used to appear and talk to Aaron and Moses. So under your wing can mark uh, the interior of God's tabernacle of meeting and the mercy seat of the Ark of Covenant, which includes the design of the cherubim spreading their wings. So he say, where you appear under this wing, I am taking protection in you inside your church inside the tabernacle of meeting. To take advantage of the secret place, that secure place in God, one must give up his sense of independence. I can live independent of the church, independent of this secret place. As long as you feel it's not important to come to the church and you can live independent of coming to the church, you will not be protected. So this shelter, the strong tower, the tabernacle, shelter of your wings, all this refer to the church. And with image after image, David built upon the idea of the rock that's higher than I. Remember, the Lord said, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he said after, he said about this rock, shelter, strong tower, your tabernacle, shelter of your wings. So no one image, not only one image, could fully express the greatness of God's help to David. Verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So David here is referring to the past vows of grateful loyalty and faithfulness to God, which he continued to honor. God heard these vows and responded to them, giving David rule over God's people. When he said to him, you give me the heritage of those who fear your name. And you can see in first and second verse how he was troubled, he was overwhelmed. But now you can see how his troubled mind became calm. Why? For he looked upon the blessing as already granted, promises of God. He considered no doubt that what he asked for would be bestowed. The word heritage here, when he said, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name, heritage can refer to the heavenly glory, the incorruptible inheritance, the gift of God to his children through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans chapter 8. St. Augustine says, Let us continue, therefore, 
and the fear of God's name. The eternal father deceives us not. Sons, human being, sons labor that they may receive the inheritance of their parents. To whom, when dead, when the parents are dead, they are to succeed. Are, are we not laboring to receive an inheritance from that father? So, if children in general labor to keep the inheritance of their biological fathers, St. Augustine is saying, are we not laboring in prayer, in asceticism, in having the gift, uh, fruits of the Spirit? Are we not laboring to receive an inheritance from that father to whom not dying we succeed, not like the earthly parents. Earthly parents, when they die, we inherit them. But the father, he is immortal. So to whom no dying we succeed, but together with him, in the very inheritance for everlasting are to live. So we will inherit with him the eternal inheritance. Verse 6 and 7, you will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. Many generations does not apply for an earthly man like David. So can we see here a prophetic meaning about the Lord Jesus Christ? He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. In, six, in verse 6 and 7, the process of prayer, prayer worked to change David's focus from temporal, the temporal crisis he is living to eternal, from the problems of earth to the glories of heaven. In verse 5, he spoke about people, those who fear you. But verse 6, he speak about himself. His life had been in danger, but now he is saying, you prolong the king's life. Now the danger was over because he trusted in this rock. The long life, which was one of God's special blessing under the old covenant, was promised especially to the king, as we read in Psalm 21, verse 4. But it may mean that David here was looking more toward eternal life in God's presence, because he said, generation, that I may, as many generations, his years as many generations. So maybe he will speak about eternal life. But, Many scholars question what he means by the king. Did he mean David or the Messiah? 
Some say that David prays for the extension of his own life, or if not of his own life, then for the continuation of his reign upon the throne. Because now he was exiled by his son Absalom. So he's the prolonging the life of king, not his own life, but his reign upon the throne. But others suggest it is a prophecy of one greater than David. David elevated above himself and above earthly thing, abiding in the spiritual tabernacle under the shelter of God's wing. So now, now in his spiritual status, he is praying for the prolongation of the days of the true king, the ideal king, the Messiah, of whom David and his house are just type or a symbol. Because these words could not be applied to a human being, it is a prophecy of one greater than David. That's why the Targum translation interpret king here by king Messiah. Also, St. Augustine supports this meaning. St. Augustine says, This is therefore the king of whom we are members, because he is the head. A king of Christ is our head, our king. Thou hast given him days upon days, not only those days in that time that had ended, that time here on earth, but days upon those days without end in eternal life. Verse 7, he shall abide before God forever. He shall sit enthroned before God forever. An allusion to the promise of eternal dominion to the house of David, enjoying his protection, the protection of God. David could only say this in reference to himself in a very limited way when he said he shall abide before God forever in a limited way because forever cannot apply to David but without limitation it applies to Christ that was promised to come from the seed of David son of David and we say in the creed of his kingdom shall have no end So it is a messianic psalm about the Messiah. This is why the everlasting kingdom of Christ alone fulfills this prayer. And I told you we pray this psalm in the sixth hour. In the sixth hour, we remember the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say the throne of God is the cross, as on Good Friday, On the twelfth hour, we chant the hymn, Your throne, O God, forever. That's why the church chose this psalm. So when we are looking at Christ on the cross, we we say to him that you will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations, he shall abide before God forever. Then he said, prepare mercy and truth, that which may preserve him. If literally understood about David, mercy and truth preserve David, so it is a prayer 
that the Lord would show David mercy and truth, favor and kindness, and perform his promises to him. So favor and kindness about the mercy, promises about the truth. So his life would be preserved. Mercy and truth, that which may preserve his life. So his life would be preserved from the conspiracies of his enemies and his earthly kingdom be established. Or he might be granted to use mercy and to be merciful with his people and administer justice. So either mercy and truth be granted to David or when David is restored to his kingdom, he will actually use mercy and truth with his people. But also these words are applied to the Messiah. As we read in Psalm 85, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Jesus' life shows us how God has brought mercy and truth together for a purpose in his plan for us. St. Augustine says about verse 7, He shall abide before God forever. According to what? Or because of what? Why he will abide forever? St. Augustine is asking. What actually make him abide forever? The answer, his mercy and truth who shall seek for him. He says also in another place, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. To men seeking his testament and his testimony. St. Augustine continues, Mercy is spoken of because our merits God regarded not. So God, when he deals with us, he doesn't deal according to our merits, but according to his mercy, according to his own goodness, in order that he might forgive us all our sins and might promise everlasting life. This is his mercy. And truth is spoken of because he fails not to render those things which he has promised. So whatever God promised us, he will fulfill. His promises are true. Last verse, verse 8. So I will sing praises to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. David began the psalm desperately crying out to God with a heart that was fainting and overwhelmed. But as usual, the psalm ends with praise, honoring the character of God as expressed in his name and doing so forever. He said, I will praise forever. So, David concluded the psalm by honoring the character of God, as the character of God is expressed in his name, because the name of God reflects when we say he's our shepherd, our savior, our king, our shelter. So, the, the character of God is expressed in his name. And David said he will do this forever. So it, it concludes with David's commitment 
to both sing praises and live out his faith day by day, trusting God and enjoying his presence. I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. David knew he had an unending obligation to thank and honor God. It could and should be done daily and that forever. So the whole psalm indicates a fervent desire to be engaged in the worship and service of God. A desire to be with him and to enjoy his favor on earth. A confident hope that you would be permitted to enjoy his presence forever. God is unchangeable, faithful, and keeps his promises. So we ought to be also faithful and daily perform our vows. This actually concludes Psalm 61. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.